at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome back to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and before he was Mrs. Gwen Stefani, Blake Shelton, Gwen Stefani was fronting the Southern California band, no doubt. We're playing music from the year 1991, and this is one of my favorites. I heard it after the war, but when I heard it, it took me back to an incident in Saudi Arabia that we're going to talk about today on the podcast. Because in that song, Gwen Stefani, as she was fronting No Doubt, is talking about how tough it is to be a girl in America in 1991. It's a lot harder in Saudi Arabia, I assure you. Uh, Just this very day at the Jason's Deli here in New Braunfels, Texas, Republic thereof, I saw uh, a friend I knew from the, the school my son used to go to back when he was in elementary and middle school, Cross Lutheran church and school. And this guy, Chuck Bailey, um, had done some uh, what we used to call uh, contracting work over in the Middle East. And, you know, when I was in the regular army before Desert Shield and Desert Storm, I had had the opportunity to travel to some places, uh, Panama, Australia. The army does allow you to travel. That was one of the things that appealed to me about joining the American military back when I did in the late mid to late 1980s. And I would go to places like Australia and even Panama, and, and I would find beauty in there. I said, wow, I'd love to come back here someday, you know, as a, as a tourist, not as a soldier. I'm willing to bet uh, 500,000 Americans that ended up in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm never said those words. Uh, uh, I was saying to my friend uh, Chuck today, I said, you know, I was just thinking about this, how you only go back to Saudi Arabia if it's a contracting thing. And in those days, uh, after, you know, during the Cold War, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, you know, we had a tremendous presence over there in the city of Dharan. This is basically an American city there for all the oil workers at Aramco. Uh, you have people that would go over there as contractors for a year after their career in the military was over and make enough money. They would just retire for the rest of their lives. It is a different place. It was such a different culture that when you hear the term culture clash, I, I lived that culture clash in my relationship that I had that I talked about last time, uh, being on the security detail with those guys from, I think it was the Prince Faisal, King Faisal Air Base there in Saudi Arabia, the driver uh, who was Saudi, the passenger who was Saudi and never said a word to me, my Canadian counterpart in the backseat and my and myself. And so today on the episode, I want to talk about what it was like, you know, we're, it's the week after the Super Bowl, 30 years later, wow, what a bore compared to the thrilling game that we got to watch in the theater of operations back in 1991. And one of the Super Bowl ads, you know, the three or four that were any good, I think you can win a trip to outer space or something. I don't know. I don't remember if you get to go to the moon or whatever, but I've never had the experience of going to another planet but when I went to places like Australia and, and Panama and Central America, 
in other places, there were still vestiges that let me know that, you know, I was in a place that was something familiar. The accents might have been different. The currency might have been different. But the people were generally the same. Arriving in Saudi Arabia was very much like arriving on another planet. I remember thinking of Star Trek when I got there, that, you know, people are dressed differently. They, of course, have a different language. They act differently. And to be perfectly honest, it was an, it was an act of superiority. The, the guys that were driving with me in that Humvee, the two Saudi guys, the one that never said anything to me, didn't say anything to me because he thought of me as a blue-collar scrub. I was just there to provide security for him because he was the you know 42nd distant cousin of the royal family by marriage. And then, of course, the driver, who was a, a bit of an upper-class Saudi. He was in the uh, National Guard. He was an officer. He was uh, he spoke English, by the way, better than a lot of the South and West Side Hispanic guys in the 217th Evacuation Hospital out of the Texas National Guard that I was serving with. And he was very opinionated, and he was happy to share with me in our in our car rides his contempt for American and Western culture. And so that culture clash is getting played out in a very real way with me in this Humvee and in these interactions. And so that's what I wanted to talk about on, on the show, on, the, on this episode today. You know, I had two, two um, guard duties back-to-back, two nights on the roof there in Escon Village in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, on the business end of Operation Desert Storm. It is now almost a month. Since the air war started, and a lot of things happened after that, you know, just by chance driving into the middle of the Battle of Kafji, like we talked about on last episode. Uh, I remember I got my first mail call. I got my first mail from home during this time. I got some letters from my friends back home. Scott Cooley, Esquire, um, Donald Jeffries sent me one of the funniest letters. I, I would tell you what it said, but I can't because it's a family-friendly show. And uh, Don Jeffries is one of the funniest human beings in the history of uh, humanity and so I can't share I can't share what he what he sent to me uh, by way of mail but it's about a month into the war and so I just wanted to tell you what it was like to be in Saudi Arabia a place that was never on my list of I would love to go there someday and it's still not I have no interest in going back even 30 years later it is a it is very much like I said like landing on a foreign planet the way Star Trek used to they would land on this planet and everything was different <laughs> but you you know you, you weren't you weren't thinking about dating anybody because you couldn't you didn't even that didn't even enter your mind there was this barrier it was literally a wall wrapped around our culture and the Saudi culture in Escon village just the way it was up in Duran they had this wall around the the Americans there working for a Ramco oil company not because they were afraid of of the uh, Saudis getting in they didn't want any of America getting out it is a world that you have to experience to understand and the other thing your know, culture clash um, you I don't think we ever used the word or the term Islam or Muslim the entire time I was there everything was referred to as Arabic 
culture. This is how things are done in the Arabic culture or the Arabic religion. I don't know that I heard the term Islam until September 11th, after all of that happened. And, of course, we found out that you know the majority of the, nine, the September 11th hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Folks, on September 11th, 2001, I was sitting in front of the TV going, I'm not surprised one bit. It wasn't just contempt for America that I heard from the driver of that Humvee, the Saudi National Guard officer who was driving. It was, it was a contempt for Christianity. There's no other way to say it. It was a contempt times a billion for Judeo-Christianity. It, it, this, was, um, this was a contempt that could not be fixed with a diversity class or a billboard or some stupid hashtag on the back of an NFL player's helmet. These were two separate worlds that could only cohabitate when the means for the richness and the opulence that oil purchased for the Saudis was endangered by Saddam Hussein. That's the only way this thing got on. And so on this episode, I just want to talk to you about what it was like to be in the city of Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, the home of the Islamic faith. That is where Mecca is located uh, because it was – for a Westerner, something very, very unusual. I mean, when I went to Australia, when I went to Central America, when I went to Panama, you know, you looked forward to, you know, getting some time off, to going in and meeting the, the locals, as we called them. There was none of that in Desert Storm. The first time we were led out of Escon Village to go buy souvenirs, we went down and visited the bazaar where they were selling, you know, t-shirts and um, those little head things that the Saudis wear. I bought one. I had one for a long time. Uh, maps and just basically trinkets, you know, stuff that you could take back and say, look, I was in the war in Saudi Arabia. It was all very uh, contained and it was all very closely monitored. Well, my my um, my detail uh, being on the security uh, being on the secu security detail with the Saudi Arabian um, Air Force and the National Guard was allowing me more access to the local population and the local culture. And when I talk about the contempt for America and our Judeo-Christian foundation, it wasn't just the driver in the Humvee. A lot of the time was spent there at the Saudi Air Academy talking with other Saudi pilots. They all spoke English. In case you don't know this, English is the language of aviation. And if you're wondering why that's the case, it's because the airplane was invented in America. If you are on any international flight going into any interna international destination, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia uh, included, to this very day, the air traffic controller and the pilot will almost always be communicating in English. And so it was in these discussions. It wasn't the, the blue-collar rabble. There was none of that. In Riyadh, the people that fixed the streets, the people that cleaned the houses, they were from the Philippines, they were from Morocco, they were from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, they were from Korea. The Saudis didn't do any of that stuff themselves. And a person like me, even though I'd come from an upper middle class home in northeast San Antonio, I was an enlisted soldier in the United States Army. I was a blue collar guy and the guy driving the Humvee who was Saudi and the passenger who never said a word one to me, they 
had placed themselves in their minds above me because of their nationality, because of their probably relative wealth compared to mine at the time, earning you know $944 a month to be there protecting their stupid country. And so we had a lot of conversations, and I'm, I was not one to shy away from, from arguments and discussions. Well, like I said, I did not encounter anything that I would consider beautiful in Saudi Arabia. It is dank. It is desolate. It is uh, brownish. That's my the color that just jumps out to me when I think of Saudi Arabia. It's even brown on the map that I had in my room when I was young. It's the desert. Even the gleaming glass and golden opulent beauty of Riyadh. There's just still something otherworldly about it, moonscape about it. I don't remember trees. I don't remember hills. I don't remember forests. I remember people wrapped up in these weird outfits, all of the women covered from head to toe. And the only only time I saw a a, a woman who wasn't covered from head to toe was on a drive through the city. We're driving through Riyadh, and the Humvee pulls over. On this particular day, it was just the three of us, the Saudi driver, the passenger who was Saudi, and myself. My Canadian friend was not with us that day. And um, we got out of the car, and what I thought was some kind of – it looked like some kind of – what we used to see, like a political gathering, like a protest or something. There were all these guys, all men, all men, um, and it's in this dusty – circle of guys and there's all this yelling going on and and the driver motions at me like hey come see this and so i'm walking through the crowd with him and as the as the crowd separates we come upon the only thing of the only person the only vision of beauty i experienced in riyadh saudi arabia during operation desert storm it was a saudi lady her head had been uncovered she was on the street, and there were men walking up to her, taking turns, smacking her, hitting her. Not punching her in the face, but smacking her and taunting her. And the, the men in this circle are yelling at her. I guess the term is jeering, not cheering. There's a difference between cheering and jeering. They're jeering her, shaming her, I guess would be uh, the, the phrase when I found out what it was all about. Well, as a Westerner... I mean, if you went to the grocery store today and you saw uh, any guy, you know, beating on a woman, most men are going to try to break it up. Hey, man, let's let's separate. Hey, knock it off. You know, uh, what's going on here? Well, that was the instinct I had. Uh, I had my rifle and I had my my sidearm and I walked forward and I didn't want to alarm anybody. So I slung my rifle around my back and I reached in and drew my Sidearm, which was a Beretta 9mm, and of course I had my 32 caliber 5-shot revolver tucked in my cargo pocket amidst the uh, plain and peanut M&Ms, and I walked forward to stop this. That's just the instinct of a Westerner, and the driver grabbed me by the arm and pulled me back and looked at me and said, and as I said last episode, you could never say my name, you could never say Jason. He always said Jackson, like Michael Jackson. He goes, Jackson, Jackson, they will kill you. This is how things are done. In the kingdom. Those were his words exactly. 30 years later, I can remember them as though they were being smoked in just a, a few short moments ago. And so we walked away. I don't have any idea what happened to that woman. I don't believe she was, was, was killed in the street. I think she was just, she was, she was being beaten. And I, I, I later found out that she had been caught driving a car. 
Now, I think today, 30 years later, women are allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. I think I saw that on 60 Minutes back when I watched news programs uh, with, the new, with the new king over there. But um, in 1991, women were not allowed to drive a car in Saudi Arabia. Women were not allowed to go outside without being covered from head to ankle. Women were not allowed, uh, you know, in, in Friday worship at, at the mosque. And so when I heard that Gwen, uh, I keep saying Gwen Stefani, the band was called No Doubt. When I heard that No Doubt song later in the year, I just shook my head. It's like, man, ladies in America, uh, you got nothing to complain about, really. Uh, the following year in 1992, when I was at the University of Texas at San Antonio, I had to take two women's history classes. Dr. Linda Schott, very nice lady, but I remember asking her one day in class, wait, do you just care about women's rights in America or women all over the world? Oh, well, of course we care about women all over the world. And I told this story, and she goes, well, we don't want to, we don't want to intrude on another culture. Well, wait a minute. You always want to intrude on Christian culture when it comes to things like, you know, marriage and and uh, and reproductive rights and you know birth control. You you have no problem, you had no problem challenging you know Christian axioms. Uh, you, it, to this day, thirty years later, I I challenge you to find someone in your friends or family circle that identifies themselves as a feminist and ask them why haven't I ever heard you talk about the way this Arabic culture treats women, because I witnessed it up close. I'm glad things are getting better in Saudi Arabia. But in 1991, it wasn't soon enough for the just, there's no other word for it, beautiful woman that I saw getting beaten half to death on the dusty streets of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I mentioned Panama. Uh, I mentioned we had to wait one time for two days to leave Panama, sleeping on the side of an airstrip somewhere in the Panamanian jungle. And I'd purchased a copy of Life magazine that had Benazir Bhutto on the cover. She was the first prime minister of Pakistan. And of course, as the first women prime minister of an, uh, a Muslim country, she would eventually be killed. She would be assassinated by other male Pakistanis. And I had a little crush on her. She was very beautiful. She was educated at Harvard here in America. I had a picture of her on my barracks wall when I was in the army in the late 1980s. And this woman on the street in red reminded me of her. Those same, that same Arabic beauty with the dark hair and the light skin. And it was very disturbing um, to see to see a woman treated like that because we would never tolerate that in America and it created in me a bit of a a bit of a contempt I guess a prejudice against that culture that endures to this very day and so th that was just one of those experiences in the war I felt no loyalty to the Saudis I didn't I couldn't wait for the war to be over, to leave. It was like, good luck to you, thanks for the memories, won't be back kind of vibe. I already felt that way going over there when we were told we couldn't have a Bible out, we couldn't have an American flag on our uniform, we couldn't call our chaplains chaplains, we couldn't have a crucifix visible around our neck. Um, so I already had sort of a, hey, wait a minute, we're here helping you, and you've got all these rules for us kind of vibe going on. My, my time in close proximity with, with people in the Saudi Arabian National Guard and Air Force, upper class people, uh, and their contempt for America and myself and our Judeo-Christian 
faith that underscores a lot of American culture, as it certainly did in 1991, unabashedly, um, and that endures to this day in many ways. And so that is that is one of my most clear and present memories from my time in Operation Desert Storm. I've often wondered whatever happened to that to that woman. She was probably in her late twenties, early thirties, so she would be, you know, sixty, sixty years old by now. And so it just it was just one of those, you know, again, culture clash. How did we get here? Was this going on when I was back in San Antonio in my apartment playing Nintendo? You know, the bit the world is a big and beautiful place. Uh in and until you get to those places and it's never quite as as beautiful or as you know mysterious as you might be led to believe and and I couldn't believe we were over there defending these people but you know I needed gas in my car too when I got back to make it to work and to fly in an airplane home and so I was happy to continue to do my part on the next episode of thunder and lightning operation and desert storm I want to talk to you about what it was like Every day in Saudi Arabia, it's not as exciting as the Battle of Kafji, I assure you, and it probably won't take 21 minutes. But there were some great, charming memories that occurred during that time between the air war and the start of the ground war. And we're only about four episodes from being finished. I'm recording on the 11th of February. The war ends on the 28th of February. So we're less than three weeks away from the war ending and so it's going to go by very very quickly and as ever i want to thank you for listening to thunder and lightning operation desert storm podcast my name is jason dyes and until next we speak we'll talk to you all next week Take care.